This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. It's great to see you. Um, I cannot tell you how blessed I am to be a part of this community. I truly do thank God often for you, for the relationships we get to have, and uh, the growth that I've seen in us as a community is astounding. If you um, are here with us for the first time today, we love to preach through Scripture. So here's what I would ask for you to do. If you need a Bible, we've got some, uh, some brothers here who've got Bibles in their hands. Just raise your hand and they'll get one for you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take it home. We'd love for you to, to have it. Um, if you do have a Bible and just forgot to bring it with you today, go ahead and raise your hand and they'll, they'll loan you one and just leave it here and we'll pick it up and use it for uh, later on. Um, if you're new to Redemption Church, I want to tell you that Redemption is a, uh, an exciting movement. I love what God is doing through Redemption. Last week, I got to be with Redemption Tucson and uh, to see them uh, grow over this last year. Today is Redemption Tucson's uh, one-year anniversary. And uh, yeah, a few of you clapped, and that's, that's good, that's good. Uh, um, we needed to put a, uh, a church there in Tucson. I know that that's a God-forsaken town, but um, <laughs> they need the Lord just as much as we do, friends. Uh, no, it was great being there with them. Um, I, I will say uh, all of the nine congregations throughout Arizona, Redemption Church has been a life-changing thing for me to be a part of and I know that as a congregation we benefit from it massively just to be a part of this community is a huge blessing to think about right now across all of uh, Arizona and different places there's nine congregations that are worshiping Jesus and uh, what, a, what a huge blessing it is to be a part of that Turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, we're continuing our series in Mark. And while you're turning there, just let me remind you of a couple things. In October, October 1st actually, we're going to start up our classes again. We, we do um, classes and RCs put on hold for that week and we ask the RCs to come and we're going to be doing classes. This, this October we're going to be doing uh, a, a, a thing that the Lord's really laid on our heart as elders. We're going to have kind of a panel and, and try to talk through some of pastoral things that we're working through. How does the gospel apply to every area of life? How does that get lived out? And so I would encourage you as RCs to come to that and anybody's invited and bring your family and friends. Um, that will be October 1st. Also, if you're not a part of an RC, get information and uh, contact Pastor Josh, the guy up here on the base today. Oh, and he's right over there. Uh, and you can find out inf information if you're wondering about our redemption communities. They meet throughout the week in different places throughout the city. And so uh, hopefully you can plug in to that. Hopefully you turn to Mark 12, uh, 13 through 17. Get, get there. We're going to be reading that in just a moment. I've always had a, a kind of a dark dream to punch somebody as hard as I can in the face. Now, um, we can't be real here. Is that, uh, is that where we've gone now? Um, I really want to, I've, I've, I've just 
dreamed of what does it feel like to not hold back and just let these fists fly as as hard as they can to come and connect now i don't want to just do kind of like a okay brother go ahead and punch me get it out of your system type thing i'm re- i mean i want to feel what it's like to just be enraged and just let it go and 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 knock somebody out that's kind of the darkness in my heart um but there's a greater desire that i have and that is a desire not to be punched back um so um so it's kind of kept me all these years from punching somebody um now i've talked to people who have punched somebody really hard and they they've confirmed that it is a really great feeling can i get an amen from anybody who's okay so i'll keep that dream going um but there's a there's a, a a reality to what I learned. I, I, I was, I'm in a family with six brothers. There's six boys. And um, you would think in a family of six boys, somebody would have got punched. But this is not what happened. In this family, we kind of learned a different way to fight. Um, and there's another way to destroy somebody. And that is verbally shaming them and assaulting them. Um, and so what we would do to kind of keep this you know, sharp tongue alive in the daily family is all the brothers, my parents hated this, but we would try to do it uh, when they weren't around. We would, uh, we would get in a, a circle and we would start playing a bongo drum and it would just say, and then it was kind of our form of battle rap. We would go around the circle and on beat, you would have to just basically destroy one of your brothers, right? Just make fun of them as much as possible. Call out, you know, physical defects and personality issues and, and just totally destroy them. Now, the goal of the game was the first one to leave crying and tattletale to your mommy, right? You lost. Now, all of us would lose because we would probably get in trouble, grounded, spanking, something like that. But we knew that somebody was going to leave crying. And the statement was when you would walk into the circle, everybody would say this to each other. Look, someone's leaving this circle crying. And it's not going to be me. Right? Just so you know, I never left the circle crying. Mostly littler boys left the circle crying. We won't name any names because there's a lot of those brothers that are still in this church. And uh, we've tried to repent of that burn session. Now, I will say that as I grew up in the Daily Family, as I grew up with this quick tongue, that it was hard for me to kind of uh, not use it as my only weapon, you know. And there's some, there's some kind of feeling that I described when you punch somebody in the face. But I will say there's also some kind of victorious feeling, prideful, arrogant feeling when you walk away and destroy somebody verbally. Um, and that can become extremely addictive. Now, I, try, I, I tried to repent of that. I, I say I tried because sometimes it comes out. Um, but uh, there was a, a time specifically, pastorally, you don't want to use that often. Never, actually. Um, and I was in a room, and there was these two young punks. And they, I won't name any names. Once again, this was a while ago. And they're, they're, they were young at the time. They didn't know that I had this past. And they didn't know that the brothers would sit around and burn. And they started coming after me. Two of church members started coming after me. Started 
trying to burn on me, you know, laughing, giggling, saying things. And I looked at Dana, I'm like, I don't, I, I'm starting to hear bongo drums, you know. It's a, <laughs> I could literally just, and I was like, okay, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going, okay. And I was like, Dana, hold me back, hold me back. And, and I looked at them and I said in a new form, listen, someone's leaving this circle crying. And it's not going to be me. I will say one thing. Now, here's the, here's the problem. Pastorally, people will share things with you, right, that are pastoral kind of issues. And, and, and these things can become ammo in the hands of very wicked men. And, and, and so what ends up happening is I told them, listen, don't make me go there. I'm hearing bongo drums. And they're like, come on, you can't do it. You can't make it. They just keep going and going and going. And in one statement, both of them left the room crying. This is not a boasting. This is a confession. I needed to get this out. If you're here, I'm sorry, okay? This was, this is a huge issue. In our time, uh, we can talk about violence when it comes to Anger, punching someone, yes, it's still there. Those kinds of things are, are ever-present. But I will tell you this, there is a huge engine of social kind of uh, uh, destroying somebody's reputation and character. And now that we have social media, it has become a massive issue to be able to take someone who has slipped in their words, who have character problems, and to be able to literally destroy them in front of people. This kind of idea feels a lot better for somebody for some reason now that you don't have to look at them in the face and do it and you can just sit behind a screen and throw things out. We know that one of the worst things that can happen in our culture now is that something can be exposed and be videotaped and be put on social media and that the masses will jump on and completely defame that person. The realities of this are more real than they've ever been before. But it's not new. This is something that people have been doing for generations. If you want to destroy somebody, you could literally violently come after them, but those pains and those wounds will heal. But if you can destroy their character, if you can defame them, if you can completely crush and expose sin and expose pro problems in their lives, you'll destroy them for the rest of their life. This kind of tactic is what is being used here. As we approach Mark chapter 12, what you have to understand is this is the tactic that the Sanhedrin is using at this time. Why are they using this? Because Jesus has come in Mark and he is announcing he's king. And not only is he announcing that he is the king, he is declaring that he has a kingdom. But the problem with the kingdom of God all the way through Mark is it never fits into the categories of their kingdoms and it frustrates them. It makes them extremely upset. And you remember a couple weeks ago, 
uh, we talked about Jesus coming into Jerusalem and coming into the temple. And at that point, as he's, as he's declaring his kingship and what his house is for, and he's showing this kind of my kingdom has come moment. The Sanhedrin is there, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they're there and they are angry and they want to seize him, but it says they won't. Why? Because the people like him. So instead of seizing him and violently taking him to the cross at that moment, although this is what we see will come, what they're going to try to do is trap him, destroy him. In the reputation of the people, try to defame him so that all of the people of that nation will not respect him. So they're coming up with a plan. Why? Because this king has been expected to come. The Messiah has been expected to come. Did they want a king? Yes. Did they want a warrior? Yes. Did they want a priest? Yes. But did they want Jesus a suffering servant who was going to come and break every category that they had ever built up? Absolutely not. And this is a way in which they have plotted and planned to come and not just crucify him. What they're trying to do is destroy his reputation. What we will find out from this text, and as we stand together, I would like for us to get our Bibles and let's stand together. We're going to read Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. What we're going to see in this is that we will always struggle to put Jesus and his kingdom in our categories. We're always going to struggle with that. Verse 13, chapter 12. And remember, as we're reading, this is the word of the Lord. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anybody's opinion, but you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. And let me look at it. And they brought it him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's? Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I have to admit that this conversation between the Pharisees and the Herodians and Jesus is extremely intriguing to me because of the debate format it is. With uh, me sharing that kind of quick-wittedness, I, I, I would say that inside of that, there is a, a true sense of battle that takes place. And, and what ends up trying to happen in the midst of this is that you have to trap them in their own inconsistencies 
in order to expose their inconsistencies and then get them to a place where they are emotionally defending themselves. And at that point, you've won. This is what they're trying to do. You could picture the Pharisees and the Herodians, which you, if you just skim over that, you won't see the significance. These two groups hate each other. The Pharisees and the Herodians are like opposite gangs joining together to try to defeat a common enemy. They hate each other. They are completely different categories. They do not work together and for so many different reasons. But I want you to get that picture in their mind because why does he point out that the Pharisees and the Herodians are there is because we're trying, we need to see that Jesus doesn't fit into either of their categories. So now they have a common enemy, and so they've come together to trap him. Verse 13 says he's, they've come together to trap him. Keep this in mind. Because all of this is an attempt to, to, to bait him, to trap him, and to get him to sh expose his inconsistencies. So let's think of them getting together, these two enemy sides, and plotting what is a way that we can expose the inconsistencies of Jesus. So they came up with a question. Now, some of you may have understood this. You, you sit away from an argument. You think about what you want to do and to go in there. Husbands and wives, maybe you've done this before. You come up with the perfect question that no matter how, he or she answers it, you win. That's the idea here. And so inside of that, they come up with the perfect question. But in order to approach Jesus, they have to lay the bait. If you're going to set a trap, you have to lay the bait. So the first part of 14 is them laying the bait in the trap. What is that? Well, they tell him, oh, we know that you are true. We know that you don't care about other people's opinions or your appearance. Compliment or a backhanded, you know, you don't care about your looks or what you say or what people think of you. And that you teach the ways of God. Notice how inside of this trap, they're laying bait to try to get Jesus to think, Oh, they are on my side, right? This is a common debate trap. This is the way in which you lure them in. I can say whatever I want because they believe whatever I say. I can give them whatever answers are on my heart because they're, they're on my side. I can let my guard down. So they're trying to set the bait for the trap. The problem with arguing with Jesus is he knows your heart. That's a struggle. <laughs> so they've crafted this question, and the question for the trap is what? It is, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, for many of us, this seems like a very easy answer. And we listen to Jesus' answer, and we wonder, why did they marvel at it? He just said, yes. Pay taxes. You've missed the whole point of the text. This is not about money and taxes. This question is so tricky and it's loaded with 
a political perspective, a kingdom idea. This is a political question. This is more of a question of them coming to Jesus and saying in a tricky way, are you a revolutionary or are you not? Have you come as king and is your kingdom come and are you going to establish your kingdom? Are you going to revolt against the government? Are you a revolutionary or are you not? And by asking if they were going to pay, if he, if they should pay taxes, the way he answered either way was going to get him into a category. Because if he said, yes, pay taxes, they would immediately go, your whole kingdom is a sham. Because you're just like the Sadducees who synchronize with the government, who pledge allegiance to the government. They're not coming to establish this new kingdom, but you are a part of the problem in the system. You're not the king, but you've come and you've surrendered yourself to it. You've followed in because in the mindset of the people of that time, which should be in our mindset, but we've totally individualized all of Christianity. We think that our faith is so personal that the only scope of the work of Christ Christ on the cross is about establishing a personal relationship with us. And when we think that that's the complete scope of the gospel, we miss the scope of the kingdom of God. That Christ has come to make all things new and to eradicate sin and to bring an answer to poverty and hunger and suffering and sickness. That the gospel and the kingdom of God is the answer for all of that. This is what they were expecting. And so when they're bringing to Jesus this question, they're saying, is your kingdom come and is it going to make all things right or should we pay taxes? And if he says yes, pay taxes, they know his kingdom is not real. And he's become a syncretist. He's synchronized with the government. He's a part of the system. But if he says no, he's a revolutionary. And if he says no, then they know that he's come to revolt and overthrow the government. But if he says no, he knows that the government will come down against Jesus and do all they can to destroy him. Can you see the trap? Are you for it or are you against it? We love, we love our categories with our oversimplifications. We love it. Our world is filled with these categories and full of these oversimplifications. We love things that are simple and easy to understand. Here's this person, and here's their category, and here's this person, and here's their category. And these people see things different, and they're opposed to each other. We love to understand what category is that person in. Now, there are very simple things, for sure, about the proclamation of the gospel. Very simple things to hear and understand. But if anyone has lived out their faith for any period of time, they understand that living out the gospel is not as easy as it sounds. Can you say amen to that? (laughs) Or as people think it is. Because there's much to do with living out the gospel that is not as political as people want to make it. Now, here's what the Herodians and the Pharisees are trying to do. 
They're trying to take Jesus and his kingdom and fit it into a political category. This can be offensive for us because if you're in any political party, you can understand that every political party lays claim to Jesus as the supporter of their political party. Isn't it amazing that from both sides of the aisle, both sides will look at the other side and say, I don't know how any Christian could vote like that. I don't know how... Am I offending anybody? I'm not sure. Maybe I am. You guys are staring at me like... Maybe you've never said that before. No. Every side says, I don't have a clue how a Christian could think that way. Both sides of the aisle will say the exact same thing. Jesus didn't do it this way, both sides would say. Jesus cares about the suffering and the hurting and the painful. And then the other said, no, Jesus cares about truth. That's what he cares about. He cares about truth. He doesn't care about the sick and the, those who are hurting and in pain. No, Jesus cares about love. No, Jesus cares about sin. What we do is we clean up Jesus and put him in our category and we make him care about what we care about. Because if you can see what is happening here, if they could clean Jesus up and put him in their categories, they could figure out how to find his inconsistencies because he did not fit. Church, we must be careful that we do not lump Jesus and the kingdom of God into one of our political categories. we got to be careful. It's amazing to me how Christians can find themselves in the extreme simplicity of just politicizing Jesus and they cannot see the both ands. They can't see nuances. They don't see that Christ has not just come in this one way, that there is truths in both and that the kingdom of God blows every category away. Hear me on this church. If you find yourself easily fitting into categories of this world, And you could easily define yourself in those categories. You may not be living in a gospel category. Be very careful of oversimplifying the realities of the gospel. Do you love these people or do you hate them? Okay, well now that is an oversimplification. Um, can we talk about it? Or do I have to just pick one of those? Do you see what I'm saying? Are they, are they going to hell? Or are they on your team? Oh, man. I, is that, those are, the, those are the two categories you're giving to me? Like I determine who's going to hell and not? Like you're going to put me in those categories where I've got to make statements that have no nuance to it. You want to oversip sound bites. We love sound bites. 
We don't want discussions. We don't want to push into the nuances and the realities of the gospel. We want clean categories. You can see this. Each side of the debate loves to oversimplify the other side of the debate. Why do they oversimplify it? Because then they can demonize them. Do you disagree or do you love? Do do you believe this or do you not? Tell me right now. Just say it in one word. Answer this question. Do you or don't you? I love how Jesus answers this question. He refuses to fit into either category. He is an equal offender of both political parties here. Why? Because he hasn't come to establish our kingdoms. He's come to establish his kingdom, and his kingdom blows all categories out of the water and establishes his own new category. His kingdom is completely different. So what does he say to them? My hope is that by the end of this text, you will get why they marveled at this. Because he says, bring me a a denarius. Bring me a denarius. And and the, the sheer point that he doesn't have one is fascinating. A point that I'll make at the end. He doesn't even have a coin. A denarii is something that you get for a day's wage. Basically, if you can think of it, just think of it as a common coin, like a quarter. Just something that's common, that everybody would have. And the reason why this is powerful that he would ask for one is because people in that time thought that if they carried one of these coins with the image of, of, of Caesar on it, it was like carrying an idol in their pocket. The image of somebody else. So he asked for one. Give me one of these coins, and they bring it to him. And what he says to them is, whose image is on this? Now, you have to see the significance of this because when he asks whose image is on this, this carries a lot of weight because this is the word and the idea of we are created in the image and likeness of God. So what he's asking is, whose image is on this? And it's an easy answer for them. Simple. Caesar. And he says to them, the most mind-blowing answer that causes them to just go, "Uh, didn't see that coming. Brilliant. He says, give to Caesar, rend to Caesar what has his image on it. But give to God what has his image on it. This is amazing. He's saying, should I pay taxes? This question is so politically charged that often we can miss the significance of it. But here's what I want you to hear. Because the revolutionaries, those who were wanting to revolt against the government, were holding their breath, waiting for him to say, don't pay taxes. So they could bring him into their camp and they could revolt against the government. But in one statement... He doesn't give them any ammo to revolt. 
And at the same time, he also tells them, but don't submit. What? <laughs> wait, 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 hold on a second. This is a whole new category. You're saying don't revolt, but don't submit? This didn't register. This, this caused them to marvel because in one statement, he's declaring that you should give and render and pay to Caesar what should be paid, and at the same time, you shouldn't pledge allegiance to him. Ooh. Is there a way for us to live inside of this broken system Humbly and submitted to God, serving and doing what civilly we should do, and at the same time, not pledging allegiance to that nation. Oh, wow. No? Yes? Wait, are you telling me not to pledge allegiance to America? Or are you telling me, what, what, what am I supposed to do? Marvel with me at the statement of God. It's a new category. It's one in which calls us to completely give ourselves over. That our bodies bear the very image of God on it. And the only ones we should submit and give our lives and render and give our image to is the one who placed his image upon us. That we should in worship reflect our, in his image back to him. And in community we should reflect the image of God to each other. And in commission we should reflect the image of God in creation and culture. That our whole lives are given to him as image bearers of God and we should be paying and submitting and living under the government we have. What? Now if you're like them, you're going that's hard to do, this doesn't make sense, how do I do that? Can you see how everybody wants a category to get behind their revolt, their issue. Everybody wants that category. They want Jesus on their team, and they want to passionately rise up and overthrow the government and to, to establish this new kingdom order. And Jesus is saying, don't submit, but don't revolt. I'm going to teach you a new way to revolt. A kingdom way. Isn't it interesting that this king who's come to establish his kingdom doesn't even have a coin. And he's come to pay the debts of his people. That the very image of God lies upon his image bearers and the only way to come and free his people and pay the debt and establish his kingdom is that if God would send his son, his very image bearer, the one who perfectly imaged him in the world, came and took on flesh and dwelt among us, that this king goes to the cross, suffers and dies and pays the price for his people he hasn't come as a king to collect taxes he's come to pay our debts 
He's come to show us grace and mercy. He's come to bring His people in. He's come to do the work. And this is the way that we are called to live in the kingdom in this world. How does it look for us to revolt To not submit to the wickedness of the government at the same time to submit. How do we do that? Like Christ who gave his life. I don't have a category for that. Can I disagree with somebody and passionately love them and befriend them and serve them at the same time? Can I confuse the people who think that I hate them by showing them great love? You better believe it and you better do it. And at the same time, can I hold firm and deep convictions around the truth of God and what He's done and how He's created us in His image and likeness and how He has called us to live? Can I hold deeply to the truths of Scripture without compromise and not separate myself from the world around me like the Pharisees? Well, they're going to rub off on you if you get too close. That demon's going to jump on you, friend. You better be careful. Jesus busted the church categories wide open because he ate and hung out with sinners. They didn't have category for somebody who could disagree and love like Jesus. They didn't have a category for some king who would come not to just overthrow, but to give his life to pay our debts. They only had a category for a king who came to collect taxes. You want to know what this does? It forces you to wrestle with how do I live not in the cleanness of political categories, theological categories, of all these kinds of categories that we try to clean up and put out. How do I live true to the realities of the gospel day in and day out? How do I live as a citizen of the kingdom? How do I live as a reflection of the and an image bearer of the king? How do I walk submitted and fully and full allegiance to him and serve in a broken system? How do I do that? The answer. We need help. Because if we start living this way, everybody's not going to like what we're doing. One side's going to say we're not conservative enough. The other side's going to say we're not liberal enough. Everybody's going to say what they have to say, but the reality is when it comes down to it, the gospel creates a whole new category. We need to wrestle with this church. Because one of the major prayers and thanksgiving prayers that we have as pastors in this city, Redemption Church, has a reputation for being plugged into places and with peoples and and serving and loving in places that blows different categories. They have deep theological conviction and at the same time they're socially aware and involved with broken areas of the city, trying to serve and love and doing it in humble ways. How can this church believe these things and be around these people? That's the church I want to be a part of. We've we've got to be convinced 
at what we really are, are kingdom people. And that the kingdom of God destroys all worldly kingdoms and boundaries and sets up this whole new system. Let me ask you a couple questions before we pray. When you look at Jesus and you see how he came with all power and authority and he emptied himself of his wealth and he didn't come to collect taxes but he came to pay our debts and when we see that he came as the true image of God and he has restored us back to our rightful place before him and brought us into his kingdom, when we see the way that God didn't didn't waver on his anger and justice towards us. We deserve death. Someone had to die and he paid for our death. God did both. He both held up his justice and anger and showed his grace and mercy and at the cross it collided together. You can see at the cross God's anger and you can see at the cross God's grace. And don't make him choose between one or the other. My friends, both are needed for God to hold his holy standard and for him to pour out his grace. The cross had to happen. How do we live that out? How do we live both with holding to God's true and righteous standards and how do we live lovingly pouring ourselves out for the sake of others? Let me ask you a question. When people look at you, can they easily put you in a category? Or do you blow up their, their category? We need to ask God for his wisdom today, church. We need to ask God, what does this look like to live this way? And if you're like me, you're going to fall to your knees and pray and ask for wisdom and help and his spirit. Because we know that this kind of living is against everything we have in our flesh. We need this wisdom where people marvel. They can't put us in a category except for this kingdom of God has come and there's, they're humble but they're bold. How, how is that happening? They have wisdom, but they're not arrogant. They have beliefs, but they serve passionately people who don't believe the same thing. They have hope, but they're broken for the world around them. They have joy, but then they cry and they feel real sorrow. Where do these people come from? Lord, I pray that today as we come to this table that our hearts would be convicted. Convicted of sin and oversimplifications. Convicted of trying to stuff Jesus into our neat, clean categories. Convicted of pushing our own agendas.
convicted of trying to just choose one clean side of truth, grace. Conservative, liberal. What is it? What, which one am I? Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves. Plead with your spirit to help us to live in and live out the realities of the gospel day in and day out. Fathers, we come to this table when we drink of this cup and we eat of this bread, we're coming hungry. Because we look at our own lives, the world around us, the oversimplification of media, the things that are happening, even churches doing crazy things and making it hard for us to even admit at times that we are Christian because we don't want to side with that. But Lord, I pray that inside of all of the confusion of this, that our eyes right now would turn to the cross, turn to you, turn to your body, turn to your blood. We would turn to you and we would see in you the perfect embodiment of your image. We would see truth and grace. We would see love and mercy and anger and wrath. We would see service and giving your life away. And we would see you withholding and standing up and holding the law of God. We would see you turning tables and we would see you holding young babies. We would see you healing the sick and we would see you fighting with the self-righteous. We would see in you the perfect embodiment of how the gospel informs and lives and that we would not just go, well, that's Jesus. But that we would ask for your spirit which you freely give to us, that we could walk in your ways, that we could live out these things and that as we eat and drink of this, that we would remember it's filling us filling our hungers it's sustaining us and giving us strength to live these things out. God, give us what we need today. Because we want to live in only one kingdom, one category. We want to be people that fully submit our lives and render ourselves to you. Thank you for coming and paying our debts. Thank you for coming and giving your life for us. Thank you for loving us and bringing us into your kingdom. And we joyfully give ourselves back to you in worship and in service and in community and in mission. We give ourselves back to you. In that we find life, in that we find place, in that we find identity, in you we find all we need. Thank you for coming and blowing up all these categories and creating a true and real and living gospel, kingdom, life. Help us live in that. Help us live that out. Let the world see your power and your spirit. Church, come to the table hungry. Come to the table repentant. Come to the table asking. Come to the table receiving. Come to the table with hunger for him to help. In Jesus' name.